Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. J.B. Hilton Green Beasley was born on July 31, 1982, to parents Hilton Beasley and Cheryl Stout. She was the eldest of five daughters and a half-sister. She was a talented dancer and was described as humble and gifted with a beautiful smile and loved country music. Tracy Jean Hallett was born on March 3, 1982, in Dothan, Alabama. Later, both J.B. and Tracy were incoming seniors at Northview High School and best friends. On July 31, 1999, it was J.B.'s 17th birthday. She and Tracy, who was also 17, had plans to attend a birthday party in a field for J.B. near the town of Headland, about 10 or 15 miles northeast of Dothan. A fellow dancer of J.B.'s named Jana Hare had planned the party. After Tracy finished her shift at J.C. Penney at about 9 p.m., she went home, got ready, and picked J.B. up at her house around 10 p.m. On the way to the party, they had trouble understanding the directions they were given. So, after getting lost, they stopped at a BP gas station near the intersection of Routes 173 and 431 and used a payphone to call her friend to either get directions from where they were or to tell them they wouldn't make it. Tracy's curfew was 11.30 that night, so they wouldn't have had very long to attend the party after getting lost. About one hour later, they were seen on surveillance footage stopping at a gas station once again to ask for directions. They were now more than 20 miles northwest of Dothan at the Big Little Convenience Store at 763 East Broad Street. A lady, Marilyn Merritt, had stopped with her young daughter around the same time and gave them directions to Highway 231 to return to Dothan. Tracy got out and used the payphone to call her mother at about 11.30 p.m. and told her they had gotten lost but got directions and were about to head home. She watched them leave, turning right, toward the highway as instructed, and the lady noticed the car was spotless. Tracy's mother had fallen asleep after working a double shift as a CNA at a nursing home. She woke at about 5 a.m. and was frantic when she realized the girls never made it home and subsequently reported them missing. Soon after being reported missing, JB's 1993 Mazda 929 was located by Officer Bobby Blankenship. It was parked along Herring Avenue, about 30 yards from the James Street intersection, less than a mile from the gas station where the lady gave them directions the night before. The car was in a wooded and secluded area that was very dark at night. 
Robbery was quickly ruled out as both girls' purses and wallets with cash inside were left behind, with JB's license lying on the dash. The only thing missing was the car keys and the two girls. The car was muddy, which was strange because the witness at the store said it was spotless when she saw it. Also, the driver's side window was partially down and the doors were locked. Without the keys, the trunk initially couldn't be opened. So a search ensued of the surrounding wooded area looking for the teens. Finally, about six hours later, an officer discovered an interior latch that would open the trunk. Once opened, the bodies of both girls were found inside. According to authorities, once the girls drove off after asking for directions, someone forced them to that remote area and shot them to death. A 9mm shell casing was found lying on Tracy's leg, and a palm print was recovered from the trunk lid. The girls were clothed, Tracy's jeans had briars on them, and she had scratches on her arm. JB was dirty, and their pants were wet up to the knees, and their shoes were muddy. Because of the state of their clothes, they most likely walked through knee-high grass in a wooded area near a body of water. An autopsy showed no signs of rape, but traces of semen were found on JB's bra, panties, and skin. Also, toxicology reports revealed that the girls had no alcohol or drugs in their system. Their time of death was estimated to be about 12.30 a.m., approximately one hour after they were last seen leaving the gas station. It was initially speculated by some local citizens that a police officer or someone impersonating a police officer pulled them over on Highway 123 because her driver's license was found on the dash and the driver's window was partially rolled down. Also, her loved ones don't believe she would have pulled over for anyone other than an authority figure. An FBI suspect's profiler was brought in and revealed that the killer was most likely a young male who could be described as a loner. A month after the murders, Johnny Barentine was arrested and charged with two counts of capital murder in the case. He had told his wife he was going out to buy milk for their toddler at the same time the girls stopped to ask for directions. Barentine did not return home until 1 a.m., and when he did, he appeared visibly upset. He told her that his car had been hit by a black truck speeding away from Herring Avenue with a Dothan license plate. He told friends he had information about the murders, and they suggested he tell law enforcement and collect the reward. During an interview at the police station, he told six stories, including a tale implicating himself at the crime scene. In addition to the story he told his wife, he claimed he picked up a tattooed man he didn't know and the two drove by the big little store. The man then got into a car with two girls and told him to follow. Barentine said he, the tattooed man, and the dead girls ended up on Herring Avenue and got out of the car. He said that one girl ran and that they were both very combative. Barentine said he heard two gunshots before the man returned to the car and both men went home. In another story, Barentine told officers this man was his neighbor. Barentine lived at 110 South Young Avenue, less than a mile from Herring Avenue. However, he later told authorities that he made up the stories to get the $35,000 reward that was being offered at the time, and DNA evidence later cleared him in the case, and a grand jury declined to indict him. 
In March 2000, over eight months after the murders, a woman told authorities that she heard screams and two gunshots near Highway 123 South, just inside the city limits on the night of the incident. The girls would have taken Highway 123 on their way home. She said she did not come forward earlier because she did not want to get involved. The area was searched with metal detectors and a 9mm bullet, the same type used to kill the girls, was found. But the brand name of the bullet did not match the brand of bullet shell casings found. In 2015, a temporary volunteer Ozark Auxiliary Police officer named Rena Crum came forward with serious accusations. She accused an Ozark police officer of the double homicide and stated that multiple other officers knew about it and helped cover it up. She claimed that Officer Whittington messaged her on Facebook and told her to keep her mouth shut. She also named other officers as being involved and stated that police chief Tony Spivey knew the killer's identity and helped cover it up. She allegedly claimed that on the night of the murders, an officer pulled J.B. over and demanded to know where some cassette tapes were that had recorded conversations. These conversations supposedly could incriminate top Ozark police officials and others in cocaine distribution. The claim was that J.B. was allegedly present when the conversations took place and had secretly recorded them. However, J.B. was not known to be in trouble or caught up in anything so risky. Rena was allegedly severely beaten with a baseball bat after she came forward. Out of fear, she refused to name who allegedly brutally attacked her or name the officer who supposedly murdered the girls or how J.B. acquired these tapes. On January 29, 2016, Keith Cawthon, Rex Tipton, Tony Spivey, Eddie Henderson, and Gary Butch Whittington, all Ozark, Alabama police officials, filed a lawsuit against Rena Crum, John Carroll, and Dean Matthews for libel, slander, and defamation of character. John Carroll was a reporter that wrote a few articles on Rena's allegations. In 2016, Rena Crum was arrested for harassing one of JB's sisters. The DNA from the semen found on JB would be provided to Parabon Nano Labs to create a DNA profile for genetic genealogy research. Finally, genetic genealogy provided a concise list of possible suspects. Through additional investigations and DNA testing, they narrowed the list to just one suspect. In March 2019, 45-year-old Coley McCraney was arrested and charged with the murders of J.B. and Tracy. McCraney is from Ozark and lived in Dothan at the time of his arrest. He had no criminal record and was not considered a suspect before the DNA match, but lived only a 15- to 20-minute walk from the spot on Herring Road where the girls were found. McCraney lived on Ed Lazenby Drive in 1999 a block west of Highway 123. The girls were traveling west on East Broad Street to get to 123. Could the girls have accidentally passed 123 and stopped to ask McCraney where the highway was and the rest is history? Either way, after the senseless and heinous double murder, he lived as a free man for 20 years, eventually got married, had a daughter, and never moved away from the area. Interestingly, he was known in some circles as a man of God with a military background. 
McCraney's occupation as a truck driver possibly allowed him to commit other crimes or even murders. When the DNA was matched to McCraney, it put a lot of doubt on Rena Crum's allegations. She recently admitted to lying about the police officer's involvement in cover-up. In August of 2022, while under pressure during her testimony, she blurted out that she lied and recanted her statements. However, the defense attorney suggested that Crum was threatened to change her story. There are still so many unanswered questions, such as why JB's driver's license was sitting on the dash. Why would Rena Crum come up with such elaborate stories? So often, armchair sleuths have very elaborate ideas and at times are spot on, but sometimes it boils down to Occam's razor, which states the simplest solution is almost always the best. Anna Kane grew up in Hamburg, Pennsylvania, and was described as a firecracker who was outgoing, brave, caring, and had a very straightforward attitude. At the age of 26, she was a mother of a daughter and two sons, living a very high-risk lifestyle, and on October 23, 1988, Anna would disappear. She was last seen around 1 a.m. near Franklin Street and South 6th Street in Reading, Pennsylvania. Sadly, about 12 hours later, her body was found on the side of Antolani Trail Road in Reading in a wooded area near Route 662 in Perry Township. She had been beaten and strangled to death before someone dumped her body. Investigators believed she was killed elsewhere because her clothes were dry despite a night-long rainstorm. DNA was recovered from Anna's clothes, which yielded a male DNA profile, but when ran through CODIS, it produced no matches. In 1990, more than a year after the murder, Reading Eagle News would feature Anna's murder on their cover, hoping to obtain new information. Instead, they got an anonymous letter signed, A Concerned Citizen, that would include numerous intimate details about the homicide. Those details have never been released to the public. DNA was extracted from the saliva used to seal the letter's envelope. However, the sample yielded no matches. That is, until years later, when investigators reached out to Parabon Nano Labs, who then used genetic genealogy to track down a suspect. 34 years after her senseless murder, Scott Grimm was finally identified as her killer. Grimm was a Hamburg-area man who was never on law enforcement's radar as a suspect. It remains unknown why Grimm murdered Anna, and he died in 2018 at the age of 58 from natural causes, so the reason will probably never be known. His DNA was collected through unknown means, but matched the DNA from the crime scene and the envelope sent to the Reading Eagle. The DNA also matched another letter Grimm allegedly sent to his former business partner two decades ago. Exeter Township Police had collected the letter as evidence after Grimm was arrested for harassing the recipient in 2002. Had he never sent the anonymous letter, her killer may have never been uncovered. Authorities are still looking into the details of Scott Grimm, such as where he lived, worked, and who he was associated with. He would have been 26 years old at the time of the murder, the same age as Anna Kane. Also, both lived in Hamburg at the same time, so many people wonder if they might have known each other. 
Grimm lived in the Reading area, but moved to Birdsboro about 10 miles from Reading shortly after the murder. While Grimm never faced justice, at least Anna's family can now have closure and Anna can rest in peace. Nancy Banalek was born on June 13, 1942. In 1970, at the age of 28, she was a court reporter engaged to Ferris Salami, the chief public defender of Sacramento, California. She lived alone in an upstairs apartment at Arden Way and Bell Street and was making plans for her wedding that was set to take place on November 28, 1970. However, that day would never come. On October 25, 1970, Ferris left her apartment before midnight, leaving Nancy asleep. She had the sliding glass door open a little bit because she wanted to allow her cat to go in and out of the second-story balcony. She did this despite her 23-year-old neighbor, Judith Hakar, being abducted and murdered earlier on March 7, 1970. Judith was taken just before midnight as she parked her car outside her apartment after returning from her shift at the local hospital. Her body was found about six weeks later in a shallow grave 40 miles away in Weimar. When Nancy didn't show up for work the next day, her co-worker asked her son to go to the apartment manager for assistance getting into her room to check on her. That's when they found a tragic scene. Nancy had been stabbed numerous times in what is described as severe overkill. She also had multiple defensive wounds, and it appeared she had fought back hard. Investigators discovered a blood trail from the balcony to a sidewalk below and continued around the apartment complex buildings before ending in a parking lot. The blood trail led investigators to believe that the suspect had cut himself while committing the crime. The killer had managed to climb to her balcony and enter through the open sliding glass door. There were also similarities between Nancy and Judith's murders, and it was curious if the same person murdered them. Eventually, Judith and Nancy's names were put forward as possible unconfirmed victims of the Zodiac Killer. Hundreds of people were interviewed, but the case would go unsolved for 52 years. In 2004, a DNA profile was developed from blood drops found at the scene, and an unknown male profile was uploaded to CODIS and the state database. It would take 15 more years before retired detective Mickey Links and the district attorney's office began a forensic genetic genealogy investigation in November 2019. On July 21, 2022, the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office announced they had solved their oldest homicide case and identified Nancy's killer as Richard John Davis. Davis was 27 years old at the time of the murder and lived in the same apartment building as Nancy. He had no violent crimes on his record and only one DUI offense. However, Davis died in Sacramento County on November 2, 1997 from alcoholism. It's currently unknown if he was responsible for any additional homicides, including that of Judith Hakar. Nancy's fiancé, Salome, did not live to see the case solved as he died of leukemia in 2014 at the age of 84. Nancy's sister, Linda Cox, was present at the press conference revealing the news and appreciated Detective Mickey Link's determination to solve her sister's case.
Helen Vogt was born on January 26, 1912, in Rochester, New York. At the age of 76, after becoming a widow, she lived alone in a townhome on the 2800 block of Zimmerman Road in Erie, Pennsylvania. On July 23, 1988, after 7 a.m., a neighbor witnessed an unknown person with a towel wrapped around his head speeding off in her brand-new Buick LeSabre. The concerned neighbor entered her townhouse and discovered a bloodbath throughout the home. Helen was found lying on the floor next to her bed. She had been stabbed to death in severe overkill and suffered blunt force trauma. The murder weapons, two kitchen knives, and a two-pronged fork, both covered in blood, were found upside down in the kitchen drawer. A briefcase that she frequently carried cash and savings bonds in was found opened in the living room. Officials said that was where Helen kept her money, savings bonds, and personal paperwork. The dresser drawers also appeared ransacked. Numerous items were missing, including Helen's credit cards, the base of a broken lamp, her watch, and her purse. The suspect also took Helen's diamond ring, which she never took off. However, there were no signs of forced entry. In follow-up interviews with neighbors, a witness who lived in the adjacent townhouse said they heard screaming before midnight the night before, along with the sounds of someone moving furniture and walking up and down the stairs. The police eventually located Helen's car, abandoned at a Dayton, Ohio parking garage near a Greyhound bus terminal. Helen's grandson, Jeremy Clark Brock, who was 21 years old at the time of the murder, immediately became a suspect. He had recently visited his grandmother and attended his grandfather's funeral several months earlier. In 1990, detectives even obtained a warrant and went to Austin, Texas to collect his DNA, hair sample, and handprints. Using advancements, authorities were able to create a partial DNA profile from the bloody washcloth found in Helen's shower, which included blood from both the victim and the suspect. They again collected Brock's DNA in 2022 to reanalyze against the evidence. Investigators also tested blood found on both sides of Helen's kitchen sink. Finally, the DNA led them to her killer, solving the 34-year-old cold case. On July 25, 2022, Helen's grandson, 55-year-old Jeremy Brock, was arrested at his workplace in Austin, Texas, and charged with homicide, robbery, burglary, theft, and tampering. This finally put an end to one of Erie County's oldest cold cases. A possible motive for the murder was a change in Helen's will. Just three days before her body was discovered, she reportedly left half of her nearly $400,000 estate to her daughter, which would be equivalent to about a million dollars in today's money. The other half was to be kept in a trust and eventually distributed between Brock and his sister once they turned 30. In August of 2014, Brock allegedly went to an HEB grocery store in Austin, Texas, and produced a note demanding money and fled with an undisclosed amount of cash. Seven days after that, he robbed another H-E-B grocery store in Bastrop, Texas. Brock is now behind bars and off the streets, unable to harm any other innocent elderly woman. Janelle Matthews was born at Cottage Hospital in Santa Barbara, California 
on February 9, 1972, to 13-year-old Terry Vieira Martinez. She would be adopted weeks later by James, Jim, and Gloria Matthews. Jim and Gloria had one daughter of their own, but wanted a second child and were unable to conceive one, so they decided to adopt. Gloria worked at a grocery store, and Jim was the principal of Platte Valley Elementary School in Kersey, Colorado, and they lived at 320 43rd Avenue Court in Greeley, Colorado. Janelle's sister, Jennifer Mogensen, described her as intelligent, independent, and sassy. On December 20, 1984, Gloria left for a trip to California to visit family and see her father who was ill. Janelle's older sister, Jennifer, was playing a basketball game in her high school gym, which her father promised to attend. In addition, Janelle was singing in a holiday concert at Intrawest Bank of Denver as a member of Greeley's Franklin Middle School Choir. Unfortunately, no family members were available to watch Janelle's Christmas program, and when it was over, she asked her friend, Deanne Ross, if her dad could drop her off at home. They dropped her off at about 8 p.m. and waited in the driveway for her to get inside safely and turn the lights on. Soon after, a teacher called and asked Janelle to tell her father that he couldn't make it to school the next day. So Janelle wrote a note on the message board near the phone. Jim arrived home about 9.30 p.m. and saw that Janelle had been home. He noticed the garage door was open, so he went inside and called out for her. He saw that the lights were on in the house, the TV was playing, and the heater was also left on next to her usual spot on the couch, but Janelle was nowhere to be found. When Jennifer arrived home about 10 p.m., she said she hadn't heard from Janelle. At this point, Jim panicked and reported her missing. When the police arrived, they noticed that the family's garden rake had been used to cover up footprints in the snow outside the home, but there were no signs of a struggle or forced entry within the house. Despite the large shoe prints in the snow that had been mostly covered with a rake and the fact that she left her shoes and jacket behind in December, law enforcement initially suspected it was a runaway case. The Greeley police launched a search and began knocking on doors. When Janelle's mother, Gloria, called the house to say that she had arrived in California, Jim told her about Janelle's disappearance, and she called a flight home the following day. President Ronald Reagan even regarded Janelle's case in a televised speech about missing children. The following May, a partial scalp was found on a farm in southwest Weld County. Gloria was asked to view it, but knew it wasn't Janelle's because the hair was the wrong color. During the investigation, detectives learned she was adopted from a Los Angeles agency when she was just a month old. Police in Los Angeles watched the birth mother's house for weeks, but later cleared her without her knowledge. Jim was also questioned many times by the police. Then in 1997, the Matthews family received a letter from Janelle's birth mother. The letter read that she had located Janelle's adoptive parents and requested them to allow a reunion with her daughter. Gloria had to tell Terry that the little girl she entrusted them with was gone. Meanwhile, the case went cold until July 23, 2019, 35 years later. That's when excavators digging in a field for an oil and gas pipeline in a remote area 15 miles from the Matthews home discovered human remains. 
DNA positively identified the remains as Janelle's, and her cause of death was from a gunshot wound. Soon after, Stephen Dana Pankey became a person of interest in her murder. His home was searched a month later, and computers and other items were seized. At the time of Janelle's disappearance, he and his then-wife, Angela, lived two miles away from the Matthews family with their five-year-old son. Also, they lived about 10 miles from where her remains were found. Panky had inserted himself in the investigation, beginning in 1984 when she went missing, and continued to do so for decades. He even discussed information only the police and the Matthews knew, such as the suspect's shoe prints being raked over. However, it was later speculated that that information might have been given to him by law enforcement. In addition, he was known to watch schoolchildren walk home from the local middle school daily. The Panky and Matthews families were heavily involved in church, and Panky claimed to be the youth pastor at the same church as the Matthews. He was described as a strange man with odd stories and possible mental illness. He'd had several run-ins with the law for acting out in public and twice harassed a bank teller. Once, a woman he knew from church, who was the piano player, accused him of sexually assaulting her. He called the FBI multiple times, claiming to have information on Janelle's case and wanting to talk. At one point, he claimed his father-in-law told him that when he worked as a groundskeeper, a local police officer told him he had a body he needed help burying. Panky reported it to his attorney and said it could have been Janelle's body. Panky moved to Twin Falls, Idaho after Janelle's disappearance. Despite having no experience in law enforcement or politics, he ran for sheriff three times, municipal council, lieutenant governor, and even governor twice, and was never elected. His campaign website said that he had studied criminal justice. Panky had always been on law enforcement's radar when considering persons of interest in Janelle's case, mainly because he put himself on their radar. Many years after Janelle's disappearance, the police had collected evidence, including testimony from his now ex-wife, Angela Hicks, who described Panky as having a disturbed mind. Investigators found information on his computers that showed he kept doing internet searches for information about Janelle and had even attempted to delete all his browsing history. On the night Janelle disappeared, he said he was away on a family trip on December 21st, but it turns out it was actually the 22nd. He claimed he did not know Janelle and had never heard of her despite acting obsessed with her case for decades. But according to his wife Angela, the day after she went missing, he told her to pack things because they were taking their son and going out of state to Big Bear Lake, California for Christmas to visit with his parents. The trip was impromptu, and she said that he dumped both of their family dogs before the trip and she never saw them again. During the drive home, he told Angela to search the radio for reports about Janelle's disappearance. This was even more strange because he wouldn't allow her or their son to listen to the radio or watch TV for the past year because he wanted them all to be more godly. When they returned to town, he stopped at a grocery store and purchased a local newspaper to search for news of Janelle's disappearance before going home. He even began digging in the yard for unknown reasons, and several days later, their car mysteriously burst into flames, and he quickly had it crushed in a salvage yard. 
He repeatedly demanded immunity in exchange for information he claimed to possess about the murder. He wrote numerous pleadings to the court consisting of odd statements such as stating that the case would never be solved without a deal. In a 1999 filing with the Idaho Supreme Court, he wrote that if justices ruled a certain way, it would be reasonable for him to think he could get the death penalty for revealing the location of Janelle's body. In 2003, he pleaded that the Matthews family should be informed that Janelle died before crossing 10th Street and not to give the family hope. He wrote his alibi and sent it in as well. Police also discovered that a few months after Janelle's disappearance, the Panky couple was attending a church service when the minister told parishioners that Janelle would be found and returned home safely. Instead, Panky suddenly grew agitated, accusing him of being a false prophet. In 2008, Panky and Angela's son was killed by his girlfriend. At the funeral, Angela heard Panky say, I hope God didn't allow this to happen because of Janelle Matthews. Panky told reporters that he was being framed by the police and targeted for his sexuality, identifying himself as a celibate homosexual. In 2019, he gave an interview to KBTV, and following the interview's airing, he typed up a lengthy statement for the news station. He listed several people that he felt should be persons of interest, the Greeley mayor, John Gates, and the police chief, and Russ Ross, the father that dropped her off at home before she went missing, and he even listed himself as a suspect, but also a victim of the police. While living in Idaho, police traveled to question him about the case. Although he was usually very talkative about it, he suddenly refused to talk to them. Ultimately, he was arrested, and on October 13, 2020, authorities announced that 69-year-old Panky had been indicted on charges of first-degree murder and kidnapping in Janelle's death. He then accused the police of conspiring against him and told the newspaper that he did not know Janelle or the Matthews family and had only heard about them following her disappearance. However, his ex-wife told jurors about finding a piece of paper in their trash in Panky's handwriting that read that the snow outside the Matthews house was raped. His defense attorney stated Panky was obsessed with Janelle's murder because he had a true crime obsession. He asked the court to review the indictment and consider whether there's even probable cause to suspect Panky murdered Janelle. Even body language experts believe he's guilty. However, there was no physical evidence pointing to Panky, only many circumstantial testimonies of his history regarding the case. During his testimony, he admitted to telling many lies about the case and being a master manipulator. He admitted to lying about his father-in-law's confession and the mayor's involvement because he didn't like them. He said, despite all the lies he's told, he was now telling the truth because he prayed about it and knew he had to tell the truth on the stand. He said his ex-wife was lying because she resented him. His trial began on October 14, 2021 and ended in a mistrial three weeks later on November 4, 2021. While the jury found him guilty of making false reports to authorities, they were deadlocked on the other kidnapping and murder counts. This forced the judge to declare a mistrial on those counts. At this point, the retrial of Stephen Pankey is scheduled for October 4, 2022. Many consider Pankey to be Janelle's killer, regardless of the mistrial. 
What do you think? Do you think he's guilty? Or is he an obsessed, creepy, strange character that kept his obsession going for over three decades? Despite speculations, Panky is innocent until proven guilty, so this will be considered half-solved until noted otherwise. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.